Welcome to the What the Data podcast with your hosts, Mitch and Leo. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the What the Data podcast. We will try to get a little bit deeper into data structures, algorithms, um, and I'm super happy to have Marcello here today, who is um, who has written a book on the topic and who knows his way around all these points really, really well. So, hey, Marcello, how are you doing? Hi, um, I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, thanks. Thanks for for uh, for joining. Um, so. My first question would already be to jump straight in. Like, could you introduce yourself a little bit to the audience? Of course. So um, I'm Italian. I'm a software engineer. I work uh, at at this time. I work uh, mainly on the back end. I joined at uh, Tundra.com a few months ago. That's a company that um, working on e-commerce for uh, wholesale and. Um, I'm, as I said, I'm working on the backend and on the data pipeline analytics for, for the company. Um, before that, I was, I've been working for uh, Apple and Microsoft in Zurich. Uh, by the way, I'm currently living and working in Zurich, Switzerland. And um, before I was in Dublin working for Twitter, um, so like, Data and social networks have been a constant part of my work for the last five, seven years, maybe. Uh, I've been working on uh, with startups and government companies at the European Commission, uh, yeah, quite a diff- few different places. And. Okay, that's that's a that's a pretty interesting, uh, pretty impressive uh, history so far. I just realized. Um, so the next question for me is that I noticed is that you go by software engineer um, in your self description, um, even though I think in some cases people would call you maybe a data scientist, maybe machine learning engineer. Um, what is the reasoning behind this kind of uh, naming? Um, so for me, in particular, I think of myself even as a computer scientist. Um, or a software engineer um, in the sense that I'm kind of a generalist. So I worked on many different stats and technologies during my career. And um, um, lately, of course, I worked mostly on machine learning infrastructure and backend scalable web applications. Um, but I still think it's uh, the, the most general approach um, and the, the most general definition applies. Um, for the terms themselves, well, we are seeing some overlap between the, the different terms. Uh, I would say there is still some some different, some interesting different. I would say still at the moment that software engineer or whoever works on um, backend or even frontend, of course, but on the let's say, bare bones of the website or applications, still software engineers is the best fitting definition. Machine learning engineers are a bit more focused on either, well, probably mostly on the infrastructure with some overlap on creating the model. And data scientists, uh, in my view, are even more focused on creating the models and analyzing the data, perhaps, Pre-processing it. Okay. Okay, makes makes sense to me. Like, 
<clears throat> it's been kind of a running theme in, in our show where I'm just kind of trying to ask people for, for job definitions because I just found that they are kind of fluid nowadays. Yes. Um, sometimes when I do interviews with candidates, they say that they see themselves more on the data science kind of profile. And then I find out that what they're doing mostly is kind of, you know, creating a, a Jupyter notebook, uh, import sklearn, and that's about it. Um, and then I feel like, okay, this is probably not the engineering level, probably not data science the way I would understand it. It's more like being able to use a, a slightly bigger tool set, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of what I what I also heard from your explanations. You would say you are a software engineer, but the way you engineer software kind of includes a lot of things that are nowadays um, data-driven and, and modern, right? Yes. I'm, uh, currently, I'm less um, focused on... The, the data, it's like analyzing the data and reacting on it, creating models for it, but more on the engineering part. So making sure that uh, the data science scientists in the company can uh, easily uh, plug in these models, uh, run them. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, I mean, the, the other thing is, of course, that you also spend some time, took some time out of your day to, to write a book. And not, you know, not not a small one and not some basic ebook that is just kind of downloadable on LinkedIn, but a pretty impressive, substantive um, theoretical work, as I understand, right? Thanks. Yes, it's, um, it's quite a you know, big book, I would say. It, uh, it's, um, it is, um, it's almost ready for, for print. It's, the printed version should be out in, in February. And uh, been, it's going to be published by Manning Publishing. It's about algorithms and data structures. And it's 18 chapters going through some of uh, the some mostly advanced uh, data structures. We'll start with, um, we actually start with um, some basic ones to you know, set the tone for the conversation in the whole book and uh, give the readers some basics and then move to uh, graphs, KD3s, um, touch some machine learning. Uh, but we try to have um, a mix between like uh, a fully theoretical book, a textbook of like the ones that are used in the college and more a more practical approach. So for each for each data structure, we have a say brief technical explanation with we delve into the implementation. And uh, then we describe, well, throughout the whole chapter, actually, we describe a context uh, where these data structures can make a difference, can actually improve your uh, your software. Okay, that sounds really, really great. I think I also mentioned uh, when we talked before the recording that um, for me personally, also as a professional who's tr still trying to actually keep up on, on, on scientific advancements or try to kind of understand new fields or get into other scientific topics. Um, I oftentimes have this problem that, sure, I'm able to follow the math or I'm able to kind of follow the theoretical concepts, but college books, for example, are focused on people who actually get to spend like two or three hours a day doing exercises and kind of um, kind of enveloping themselves into the into the topics for, for the whole day. Um, so that's why I really like this idea of kind of bringing a book to the market that is um, helpful to professionals that doesn't dumb things down. You know, it's, it's probably still kind of a, a big theoretical treatment on the on the issue, but it's still something you can read while doing other things in your life, right? Absolutely. Um, so 
obviously the the uh, we are we are going to get some um we got we are going to get some voucher codes for the book i'm sure um at least that's what i heard from from your publisher so um for the re, uh, for the listeners um make sure you check out the check out the description i'm sure there's going to be something for you there um but moving on from the book um let's also talk a little bit about like practical work stuff that that uh, we we encounter in our lives in in, in working with data working with um with data-driven algorithms that kind of that are supposed to be productive in a professional setting. Um, one topic that we briefly touched on before is, for example, the idea of, and, and something that we talk about in the podcast a lot, is the interface between business and data. And the idea that engineering, analytics, and business have to somehow find a way to work and be productive, even though those three sides not always understand each other. Is there maybe something that, that uh, you could say to this topic? Well, yeah, of course. I mean, the risk is always like if there is not good communication, the risk is always that, um, well, for example, for the engineering part, like talking from my part, uh, it's being over-focused, too much focused on technical uh, technical issues, like over-optimizing maybe, or like chasing uh, technical, challenging and interesting technical solutions, but it doesn't don't bring... Um, a lot of business value and on the other end from the business side it, there could be the, the, the opposite risk so like chasing let's say not scoping or not grooming um, well enough the the new features that are taught and so deciding that like something is good for business without taking into consideration the engineering impact uh, and how difficult it is to get it right. Like, I mean, everyone would uh, want model, like a perfect model that can estimate with 100% uh, precision uh, or can give uh, a perfect recommendation in a microsecond, but you also have to uh, to look at the engineering aspect of it and to see how feasible it is for your company and if you can have some compromises that will give you most of the value with the, a little effort, like the like the Pareto principle in, in a way. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, the engineering side, I think also to me, um, to think of an example, um, I remember working for a company and then, then someone in, in, in the conversation about how we wanted to um, deploy a certain machine learning model. And then the other person said, it would really be fun to build like a general purpose uh, data science microservice that just delivers different kinds of models to different kinds of places whenever it's needed. Um, and I said, yeah, I'm sure that would be fun, you know, but it's really only that's one model that we have. So um, the question is really, um, how are we going to make decisions like this? The engineer, of course, says it would be fun. And if someone gives him the license to do it, he, he, he is going to do it. Um, and he's probably going to do it well, right? Um, the problem is mostly that sometimes the managers wouldn't necessarily understand what the engineers are suggesting. And then they would just kind of go by whatever feeling they have or however much they trust the engineer to solve the problem. Um, and then I saw like a lot of situations where like solutions were ridiculously over-engineered yeah. just because engineers just kind of like to do these things. Right. Um, and managers sometimes don't necessarily have the, the technical understanding to make these kinds of trade-offs. Um, this is why I, I like this topic and this kind of conversation so much because 
you would kind of need to combine two perspectives. Otherwise, you would not make good choices, right? Absolutely. And yes, I was exactly in the same situation. Uh, the problem was that um, it was at a time where I was uh, I, I had just joined the company and there was this project and, and an engineer um, that pushed and got accepted the idea of building a general purpose solution for something mm -hmm. really complicated. And... Um, Well, long story short, like after six, six months, we had more or less built that with a delay over deadline of three months. And we discovered that it was not uh, even solving the problem we had. So <laughs> we had to start over. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that there... The, The issue, like, I mean, there are a few ways you can cope with it. A very good engineer with, that I worked with has uh, passed, by, passed on to me this rule uh, of, uh, like, the rule of three. So before building a general model for something or a general version of something, make sure that it's used in at least three different places and with three different nuances, let's say. Um, and that's like one rule of thumb that you can use. Of course, it can be five or instead of three. Or, mm -hmm. But uh, the point is make sure that it's actually needed uh, a, a generic, a general purpose or a more generic version of something is actually needed. And the other point for me is like you need good communication. You need, as engineers, we need to communicate better and estimate better the effort, but also the impact of what we are doing. Um, and that's, by the way, what's, for example, we are trying to say at where I'm in my current team. Uh, so for each bug or for each task, uh, estimate not just the engineering effort, but the impact on the, the final product. And so we can decide what we should prioritize And the other thing is also trying to communicate better with uh, even the internal client. So, for example, for the project I was mentioning, the one that faded badly, um, if we had involved in the people that were going to use this product more, we would have discovered earlier that uh, building all that was not needed, was not just not needed, but we were off like our target was off mm. yeah i can i can totally see these situations happening all over the place it's just there's this one stereotype that i think is important to sometimes question which is engineers don't make these trade-offs well and business people know how this stuff works because to be honest i've also spent a lot of time in in meetings with like you know business development project managers product managers and so on and so forth um, and sometimes uh, me as usually I'm, <clears throat> I'm, I'm in an analyst position in these situations. So I'm usually kind of trying to use a lot of technical methods and, and pitch in a lot of engineering decisions. But ultimately I, I try to kind of estimate the effects on the business that, that happen out of a, a project. So some, I remember one occasion where someone told me like, okay, so this is the savings that we've calculated for this project. And I looked at it and said, like, it looked like, uh, it said 7,000 euros a month. And then I just looked at the number and looked in the room and said, like, are you serious? Do you have any idea how many people are sitting in this meeting room right now for one hour? You know, like that's not like th that number doesn't make any sense. You know, it's nice to save this kind of money, of course. But having 10 salaried people sit in this room for at once a week for one hour, um, 
that saving is not going to be worth it. Um, and that's, that's some some funny blind spot <clears throat> Good that point. I tend to see more with employees and not just business or engineers, just general employees sometimes think about would this be fun? Would this make sense? Does this have some positive effect, but not really go through the, the numbers in that sense? Yeah, I think in that like uh, data and analytics uh, also helps a lot. And it, it in in current economy, especially, but with modern companies, it makes only sense to have a data and analytics drive also business decision, of course, to a point like blending in also other factors, but uh, data can actually uh, give you a pretty good idea of what will work and what could not be worth the effort. And like um, being able to gather data, trying new features, for example, and uh, uh, gather data on these new features and analyze the impact on, and the difference between customers that uh, have been presented with the feature and customers that doesn't have them. Uh, that can make a difference, that can save the company a lot of effort and a lot of money. And so that's like another... Sorry. <clears throat> no, definitely. I, I think the, the, the point is that um, the point is that sometimes we're easy to, to apply data to our products and not so much to the way we work ourselves. Mm -hmm. And this kind of back and forth is something that's always been fascinating me. Um, that you would, for example, be willing to run an A-B test to increase your conversion rate by, I don't know, a, a minuscule number that generates a few hundred euros a month. And you're willing to invest thousands in terms of engineering time and effort and just salaries of people sitting in meetings for these kind of improvements, just because you have one set of goals for your conversion rate, for your revenue, and one set of goals for your organization, right? Um, but I think we could actually do a service for this by just trying to, to give some short explanations for business people um, that are related to data topics. So maybe that's why I, I have a, a few questions that we could maybe just try to nail down once and for all to make it easier for, for business people to make certain decisions. Um, one, for example, is what is the difference between a model and an algorithm? Okay, sure. Let's try. Well, uh, I would say that a model is an algorithm. Uh, it's a particular algorithm that's um, developed in a different way. Like a traditional algorithm is uh, written by a person. Uh, it's uh, designed probably on paper or on a, on a whiteboard and then written, like codified in a programming language. A model instead is still an algorithm, so something that takes an input, do some computation, maybe has some side effects, but well, not really models. Uh, models just have an output. Um, and uh, the, the difference is that uh, you use uh, a, another algorithm, basically, to uh, define this model, to find the best algorithm uh, that um, for the data that you are working on. Uh, so, for example, if you are um, doing a, if you are working on a classification system, developing a model for a classification system involves likely running an algorithm that optimizes some parameters on a generic models and tunes these generic models into a specific one that works well with the input data that you uh, gave it. So, matching well the inputs that you have to the output that you have. And hopefully it uh, can also generalize well to data that it has never seen. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks. That's that's a very very uh, very good and concise, I think, explanation. The reason for asking this is because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but what I personally believe, for example, is that a product manager should be able to make the decision or to at least discuss the topic of should we use a model or an algorithm. But if the question becomes which algorithm should optimize the model that we're using, this is where the product manager is kind of out and which where it becomes an engineering question. Yeah. Um, and I I feel like. If we keep making these kind of lines and distinctions, then this is going to make it easier for for many people to have these conversations. Because, for example, I remember also conversations where like managers would kind of want to talk about optimization algorithms and if they were fast or not fast and if they would be the easiest solution or the 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 most resource efficient solution to a problem. Those conversations for me always kind of like were always kind of awkward, right? Because you were like, well, you wouldn't know the upsides and the downsides. I could tell you the upsides and the downsides, but then you would decide what I just told you is better or worse, right? So there's nothing being added in a conversation like this. But the idea of should we actually run machine learning, build a model and deploy it and serve it, um, I think that's something that a PM should actually be able to, to some degree at least, to be able to pitch in or or to decide on. Um, Is that something that you've seen in your personal career that conversations were always on the appropriate levels? Or did you also notice this kind of jumping around? Yeah, I mean, it's easy to, to have this, uh, say, misunderstanding or, or overstepping, maybe. I think that the PM, uh, PMs should rightfully be concerned about the efforts that uh, creating a certain model or a certain system has. And so the engineering effort, the, the cost, and uh, in how fast it can be created, for example, to, to build a completely new solution. Um but uh, then sometimes micromanaging it, so like going into the decision of exactly which model to build. I mean, it technically it doesn't even make sense uh, to some point because uh, uh, to to choose the best model, you probably have to run run a lot of tests. So, like the the, the best way that you have to decide to use, I don't know. Uh, a neural network or a logistic regression or a, a just a, a random forest. It's a, you, you can only take this decision by comparing the results of this model on training sets and see which one does better given the, the volume of data you have and the quality of data you have. Um, that said, like, uh, th- there are some high-level discussions that can be uh, tackled even at the grooming level or uh, while at the beginning of a project involving PMs. So, for example, if you don't have a, mo- a model in-house, uh, if you have to use a third-party service that is providing some model rather than another model. And, uh, well, even about speed, I mean, if um, you, you can, like, I get engineering input about, uh, for example, that you can, like an engineer could chime in and say that a neural network or a complex model will be overfitting if you don't have a, a large, large data lake. Uh, so you need at least a certain amount of data for this complex model to work well. And, uh, with this feedback, you can decide that it's not the case to invest in, you know, 
a third-party service that uh, already provides you deep learning, or and you can make do with a random forest, or you can choose between different services. But for the actual implementation, I I don't think that. Like I think, as you said, it, this should be left to engineers and data scientists. Yeah, I, th I think this. Uh, I think those those are some very good good pointers, especially also the entire topic of being able to decide if the model is good or not uh, is is a matter of kind of going through a lot of diagnostics. That um, I was usually I was uh, lucky enough in my career that people would just kind of trust me to a certain point because sometimes these conversations about model diagnostics and model scores can can be very tedious and not really kind of helpful, right? Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, I also noticed uh, people um, going in the other direction. So for example, I also, as an in-house analyst, I sometimes evaluate um, the models of agencies that provide like uh, media mix modeling, uh, marketing efficiency modeling, growth models, these kind of things. So I would then, as an in-house counterpart, I would actually go in and kind of validate the model and just do the diagnostics myself. Mm -hmm. um, and there I found out that there's also this other side of it where people would just kind of try to fly by just by using fancy words. So an agency would just come in and say like, uh, we have an R squared of uh, 98%. And I guess that sounds good. Of course, if you're kind of in the statistics and, and prediction business, you know that the only real way is to just kind of force the model to predict things it hasn't seen before and then see what happens. Yes. It's not so much about how well it can put a line on the, the points that you give it, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, the point is, of course, that the, the, the agencies, for example, they, they would just use this one number and then they would then you would see like um, six-digit, seven-digit contracts being made on the basis of this. Um, so the other hand, of course, is that if you put too much trust into these things, sometimes people can try to to trick you into accepting subpar quality modeling and, and work. Um, but that's, I think in the end, a question of like, how, how do you lead your, have your, your, how do your relationships work, you know, with your partners, with your employees in the end, if you have a system of trust and a, and a feeling that people are competent, I think you can find a way to, to split the responsibilities and say, okay, managers talk until this level, engineers talk on this level. And, and then we make a decision together. Absolutely. Um, yes. Yeah, it's but, so, um, sorry. Mm -hmm. No, no, sure, go ahead. Just wanted to say it's always hard with, especially when you work with uh, agencies or third parties. Of course, everyone is trying to uh, do the best for, for their company, right? Uh, I assume like good faith and a good level of trust, of, of course, any time. But um, I guess you only have, you also have to measure the results on while. Uh, once you start using uh, a, an external model or a model provided by an, an external company. Same for internal, by the way, but like if you develop something in-house, you probably have uh, also the, like the working on the metrics and the taking, care, um, taking a look at the metrics, keeping an eye on it uh, more closely. Yeah, I think this is also a very important point is that, I mean, there's always a limit to how much you can trust external agencies. And if you believe it's best for your company to just put some central and important functions out to other agencies and you don't have anyone in-house to validate that for you, mm -hmm. that's just a big risk. And I think that's just something that, that managers have to decide for themselves. 
But sometimes I have this feeling that managers would just say, okay, data is just this thing on the side that I don't care all that much about. Some agency can handle that for me. This could be a recipe for disaster, I'm, I'm sure. Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's see. I have this uh, this this running joke uh, where I ask people for uh, where I talk about the fact that every company I've ever worked for mm -hmm. has forced their data scientists to build a recommendation engine, <laughs> um, and that most of them eventually ran out of ideas once the recommendation engine was done. Um, so that's why I think I, maybe I should be more constructive and 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 ask the question of like. Um, What are some central applications of machine learning in today's applications, websites um, that are not recommendation engines? <laughs> uh, recommendation engine would have been my first answer to the generic question. <laughs> But yes. Um, so well, I think in general, uh, we can use uh, machine learning to improve user experience in many ways. Recommendation is just one way. And of course, it's uh, one good way for the company because like the better the recommendation the more engaged the user would be the more they will buy on an e-commerce site so, so they, they they are good um, but um, I would say that also uh, depending also on the context but it would be nice to make the user experience as smooth and as nice as possible so maybe trying to understand uh, how a user uh, navigates uh, your application or your websites and uh, maybe having the dynamics, um, some dynamic menus or dynamics, dynamic parts that um, accommodate uh, the, the way that the users uh, use your product. That could be something uh, definitely uh, probably my second choice um and uh, it can also be used to uh, help you understand your business so how you're doing what you should push next what is really working on on your company one thing i really um like and i'm trying to see how much we can use it is um to using machine learning to help the engineering Uh, teams, for example, with uh, logs and alerts to understand. Uh, I mean, uh, we all had probably in our career at the point where we were on call and we received these alerts at three in the morning and it like we go out of sleep, like we wake, wake up, uh, all sleepy and look at our phone and we realize it's, uh, it's nothing. It's uh, just a glitch. And um, I think that uh, using machine learning, it's possible. I know there are companies that are working on this. There have been white papers in the last couple of years um, exactly on this. And uh, it helps a lot uh, taking the burden, like some burden off uh, the, engineering the engineers' shoulders and helping them to uh, react only to the alerts that are actually time-sensitive and uh, serious, like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is this is another very interesting concept because this is also goes in the direction of when I said earlier, sometimes we worry about ROI on the customer side, but not on the organization. Mm -hmm. We also worry about like what can machine learning do for the user experience, um, which is, of course, more than recommendations, but it can also do a lot for the organization itself, right? Like you gave the, the, the example of kind of helping engineers to understand which... Um, 
which warnings or which errors were actually meaningful. Um, another point for me is I know for a fact that a lot of BI teams spend hours and hours and hours of their days to just kind of verify the consistency of their data mm -hmm. to make sure that the numbers uh, don't have any any issues with them. I am very certain that there are machine learning solutions that can also kind of make sure that whenever something with your data is wrong, then you will know, you will find out. Um, there are, of course, there are like um, companies that are trying to kind of uh, be, be started around this point, but it's even something that a company with their own in-house data scientists or machine learning engineers can kind of put more effort into. Because the point for me really is that you can make tasks that kind of need a certain level of human cognition, but not really a full human brain, those tasks can be automated. Those tasks can be done much better than they are right now. And that's why I like the suggestion, you know, just kind of expanding the scope of what it could be. Um, another point for me is also that, um, as I said before, you know, the running joke for me is that machine learning uh, data scientists usually are kind of like pushed into build a recommendation engine for me. And then they don't quite know how to turn this into a real job for two years. And then this whole thing kind of fizzles. Um, the question for me is also, um, how do you help uh, data scientists, machine learning engineers, people kind of trying to use these new modern solutions? How do you help them to estimate the potential uplifts that they can get out of their solutions? Because for recommendation engines, for example, there's a very standard approach of collaboration, collaborative filtering that works reasonably well and where it's always kind of hard to justify why you would spend more effort on it. Um, so how do you deal with conversations about like um, how much effort should we put into this to improve? How do we estimate the improvement we can get? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, one thing I wanted to uh, add to the previous one was is that Probably in the, I don't know if you agree with me, but in the next five, ten years, I also expect deep learning to provide more aid on repetitive engineering tasks like generating APIs, probably, or maybe even UI, um, given mm, some short description. And I think that we are close to that. And uh, especially for the API, I think we, we can see some of these solutions uh, in the next few years. So back to your last question. Um, yeah, I, I think I think it's very complex decision. Um, first, you of course should decide if you should build something in outside. This is not just for machine learning, but um, when does it make sense to build something in house? Uh, if you can have something off the shelf, if some other company has a that has like a a long ex experience on creating a uh, logging system or a, a search engine, like something, uh, um, something like Elasticsearch, for example. Why would you build it in-house? Because it's a, a, a very big effort. I, my answer would be like, it's probably never going to be... Uh, like a, a saving, uh, ne never gonna be co uh, good like business-wise, or I say never gonna cost you less than getting a third-party solution. So maybe if you really, if you really need something customized, then you might think about it. Or if you have in-house uh, patent or you have done some research 
and you are sure that you can build a competitive advantage, then it might make sense. But of course, mm-hmm. there, I think there are like many, many factors to consider, starting from the size of your engineering team, uh, what are your goals and what would be the advantage of building like your own solution. And as you say, spending two years to build a recommendation system, what would, if you cannot estimate clearly that it, it can give you a huge, uh, a huge advantage and uh, uh, make make your company save a lot of money or earn a lot of a lot more money or gain market shares, then you shouldn't probably go for that. No, at, at least that's my take over, like after uh, these years. That that makes that makes a lot of sense to me, especially like I, I think one point that you brought up quickly, but that makes sense to talk about or to just kind of keep in mind at least is you said if your company has some kind of patent, because mm-hmm. you could also argue there are some things that are the intellectual property of my company, some things that I should be doing in a house just because this kind of uh, is the reason why I get all this funding and why my company is worth this much money is because some things we can do really well and some things are just very important to us. Um, I think that's part of the consideration. Um, But other than this, yes, I I, I totally agree on on kind of looking at the idea of what is the business value, what is the the upside for the company and how do we make this choice in a smart way versus what the engineers would like to do. Because I think for a lot of engineers, it would be fun to build a new Elasticsearch (laughs) competitor. Um, I, I could totally see that being fun. Um, on the other hand, yes, the company always has to ask itself. So seeing that we're kind of running out of time, um, could you maybe just kind of try to give a, a short kind of, um, let's say, your, your your main takeaway of, of the topics we talked about? Well, I would say like um, communication. Um, yeah, we should improve communication between the different players in the company, make sure that everyone is like focusing on their area of expertise and give an honest take that takes into consideration the value, the business value, uh, the engineering effort, of course, the even the engineering value, okay, because a solution like a refactoring can have a huge engineering value and uh, like further development, development in the company for the future. But the key idea is I, at least what I try to do, what I try to have driving me and uh, in my work is when I have to groom or scope new features, when I have to come up with a new engineering solution, I try to ask myself not just like the engineering questions, but uh, also um, what this will bring both to the engineering team and to the company in general and trying to be as transparent as possible and to put myself in other people's shoes as well, to view, to view, let's say, to view uh, the problem from different angles. That sounds that sounds like a like a great takeaway. Um, so I think this is really really convincing thing for everyone to just keep in mind. So um, thank you for 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 being on the show. I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, Let's stay in touch, you know, whenever you want to uh, want to talk about something else or whenever you have some time to talk, we would love to have you back on the show. Um, thank you. So, um, yeah, thanks yeah, for the conversation. Um, and um, have a nice day. Bye-bye. Thank you. Have a nice day. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to the What the Data podcast. 